0: And welcome to another episode of Fuckboys of Literature. I'm your host, Emily Edwards. Like all media, video games, movies, comics, and the like, literature has fanboys. And where there's fanboys, you will always have folks who take their chosen idol a little bit too seriously. And unfortunately, one writer has become somewhat of a shorthand for insufferable literary types. Today, we're talking fuckboys of literature, the dudes who worship David Foster Wallace, and arguably David Foster Wallace himself. With me today is my dear, dear friend, writer Andrew Rostin. How are you doing today?
1: I am doing great, I'm and I'm particularly happy to be here.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much for doing this. One thing I should point out for context for all the listeners who are probably going to send us hate mail at some point, I appreciate his writing, even though it is not my usual fare. Or am I assuming things? Because maybe you're not a huge fan
1: you are not assuming things a couple of years ago on the recommendation of a friend i bought and read all the way through infinite jest and i think infinite jest it is one of the most brilliant original very funny and surprisingly very moving novels of my lifetime and i don't see anybody equaling it maybe in the next century
0: in the next century
1: and that is both Praise and criticism is so original and so out beyond what I think most human beings would imagine, but there's also some things we shouldn't necessarily imagine.
0: Okay, okay. So I'm going to leave somewhat of the criticisms for a little bit later. Um, I have not tackled Infinite Jest. I read brief interviews with hideous men as my only David Foster Wallace full-length work. Um, I actually really, really liked it. Uh, Parts of it were remarkably true to life. And then other parts of it I found incredibly moving. He has a piece in there with an interview between a man who, a Black man whose father was a, a restroom sort of attendant. And he said that, and in the whole crux of the essay is that he'll this man who's being interviewed will never wear white because that was his father's uniform color. And it just reminds him of like the debasement of having to sort of stand in a room unnoticed while met around them as doing just, you know, the grossest parts of, of living. And I just thought it was such an interesting takeaway and an interesting essay. But I have to say that while I was reading this, I was reading it on an airplane. And I was going to Las Vegas for a conference and I was reading it on an airplane and the man sitting next to me started hitting on me using David Foster Wallace's brief interviews with hideous men as a way to like entree into a conversation with me. And I looked down and he was wearing a wedding ring. And I thought to myself, this is the most indicative you know, type of situation that you expect when you are talking about brief interviews with hideous men and men who worship David Foster Wallace and it was just you know when you just look around and you go like, if I wrote this in a book, no one would believe me?
1: I definitely know the feeling. <laughs> I actually wish that man had some of my discretion. <laughs> For the listeners While Emily is talking in beautiful Los Angeles, I'm here in Chicago, and I do a lot of reading on the CTA, and there are so many times I will see other people, particularly women, reading books I genuinely love, and I always have to stifle the urge to say, "How how are you enjoying that? That book's so great, because I would come across as creepy man on the train
0: generally speaking just don't approach strangers in public that's our that's our first Psa of our chat but you and I you know we've discussed this obviously we we talked about the concept of the podcast before we started recording um, and it's not so much it's the the totemic way people treat his books and a specific subset of people treat these books novels and works that's the sign that you're just like if your favorite book of all time if you if you say it in casual conversation is infinite jest i'm probably gonna cross the room i'm gonna politely remove myself from the situation (laughs) And, and i know that it's not your favorite book so at least i am you know saving myself a little bit of embarrassment there um I, you know, I have often felt that David Foster Wallace is like the patron saint of that Twitter account, guy in your MFA. Have you read that?
1: Only a little bit. Is it is it still active?
0: I think it's still active. I think the the woman who ran it actually got a book deal out of it. So good for her. Woot. So Infinite Jest obviously has a sort of um, a cachet to it that I think quite frankly, don't even know what it's about. I just assume it's about a man struggling with his own brain.
1: Very briefly, it's about a tennis academy and an addict's home in Boston, Massachusetts that also involves wheelchair-bound Canadians plowing to overthrow the corrupt government and really mysterious films by a dead filmmaker. And it goes on for 1,400 pages.
0: That does not sound like a book I want to read. Welcome to Fuck Boys of Literature when Emily admits that she's got really terrible taste in books. Um, I managed to read all of the Twilight books, but I'm not going to tackle Infinite Jest.
1: One brief detail from Infinite Jest that I absolutely love, which is in the next to last chapter, they discuss a torture method in which people are forced to listen to isolated Linda McCartney vocals from wing songs. Oh, my God. There's a lot going on in Infinite Jest. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot. So while we were reading, you and I didn't share our reading lists with one another. Not exactly. I knew you had read Infinite Jest. You knew I had read Brief Interviews. And uh, after that, we kind of decided to do our own research for this. And then one day you Facebook messaged me and you just said, read Good Old Neon. It is fascinating me and I think it will annoy you to death.
1: I was halfway through the story. And a key point where I was, this is going to drive M crazy, and I should let her know.
0: Oh, and it did. It really, really did. <laughs> would you, would you give us a very brief summary? And don't worry about spoilers, guys. The s the story is like twenty years old, so if we spoil it for you,
1: deal with it. So good old Neon, which is from his last short story collection, Oblivion, is. A very long monologue by a man who perceives himself to be a total fraud in all instances in his life. And when he, after trying lots of things, including car restoration, lots of sex, yoga, religion, and finally therapy, he decides that he cannot overcome his perception of being a fraud and decides to kill himself. There's a bit of a twist ending, which is very good.
0: Spoil it. Go for it.
1: At the end, after this very, very, very long, fascinating, intellectual, sometimes quite funny, but always glib monologue.
0: Yeah. And when Andrew says really long, I say that the the format of it that I read was 41 pages long.
1: That sounds about right. The narrator, who has been hinting the whole time that somehow he's talking to us, breaking the time barrier because he's already killed himself
0: from beyond the grave, somewhat, sort of woo-woo.
1: We get to the suicide, which is handled in a footnote, to add.
0: Yeah, we'll get to footnotes later.
1: And then the final two paragraphs, we discover that all of this was David Foster Wallace himself as a character in the story, imagining what this man he was envious of in high school had to have been thinking when he killed himself, because Wallace cannot conceive of any reason why such a handsome, successful, well-put-together human being would want to end their life.
0: Exactly. And of course, we should mention uh, that unfortunately, uh, Wallace did take his own life. He died by suicide about 10 years ago in 2008. Why did you suggest we read this bit right now, you know, like for this? What about it was like, this is going to annoy Emily to death? Yes.
1: Well, here's the, here's the big reason, and I think it had to do with my own personal reading list. To get a good sense of, of Wallace as a whole and figure out what makes the David Foster Wallace fan tick, I got the David Foster Wallace Reader. If you're reading the short stories, Good Old Neon is juxtaposed with, right before it, a story from Brief Interviews of Hideous Men called The Depressed Person. The Depressed Person is also a story about a person suffering from mental illness, as the title would suggest. In The Depressed Person, the titular depressed person is a woman. In Good Old Neon... Huge difference. In Good Old Neon, the protagonist is a man. And I'm a firm believer in the different choices that writers make and the details they choose to emphasize matter.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: So the juxtaposition of the depressed person and good old neon is this. With the depressed person, the depressed woman's mental illness is depicted through this recursive narrative in which these simple declaratory sentences are repeated over and over again with the same terms used in different variations as one cause or effect of her pain piles up on top of the other and on the one hand this i feel like this is a fascinating way to depict depression through words alone
0: right as anybody who has either fallen into a depression or is clinically depressed um you know you you do ruminate over things you do focus on things and refocus on them and it builds in your head sort of
1: like that absolutely so I think that's a clever idea. It also makes the story a slog to get through. It's by design, but that's what it is. It's a slog. While the man with mental illness in Good Old Meon is presented as both the narrator for most of the story and then David Foster Wallace at the end, thinking about himself, they're presented as this is so." awesome and so clever. And we're gonna share with you things you've never thought of before. And we're gonna think deeply about time and space.
0: Oh, absolutely. I have to agree with you. The depressed person, the way that, and the things that sh- the character ruminates on, the thing that the, the woman ruminates on, they're, they're very vain. A lot of it is like her teenage orthodonture and things like that. And they seem almost petty.
1: That's it, the protagonist of a depressed person the woman is pathetic. In good old Neon, the man is almost superhuman and almost worthy of our admiration because he is impressing us with his knowledge and what he has learned from being suicidal.
0: See, I think that's an interesting thing to point out is that I hated him throughout the entire reading. And while I felt you know, empathy for the person in the depressed person. I hated the man in good old neon. I wanted to throw what I was reading through a window. I didn't ever feel, even though the character is telling you I'm speaking to you, you know, beyond the grave, essentially, like a godlike sort of power. I was like, I hate you. And I hope, you know, this ends soon, even though I still have 30 more pages to read. Because it it was hubristic and full of himself and obnoxious.
1: Now, there is one particular passage where it was the one that made me go, oh, Emily will hate this. Where he delves deep with almost a wink on the page into how, man, have you forgotten that I'm dead already? This is a paradox.
0: Oh, I know. Oh, you know what killed me was when he started writing out his um his feelings about things in math in logic exercises that were that were almost like calculus. And I thought to myself, you know, let let me be honest here. I barely passed trigonometry and then I stopped taking math in high school and haven't taken a math class since I was 15 years old. So, you're going to see The limits of my intelligence on this one, but it struck me as such a man, masculine thing to do, is that you know his his relationships to things could be written out in the unassailable and truthful language of mathematics, and if you've ever tried to have an uh, tell, this is something that women talk about often with, the, with each other, I'm not sure how often we discuss it with, with dudes, is that when you try to talk about your feelings or a problem that you have, most men will try to fix it using logic because a lot of the times guys are raised to feel that they don't have feelings. So every, if every thought that passes through the head, they feel is logical And so boys always try to logic themselves out of situations. And the fact that this character had, um, you know, expressed his feelings about his own death or his own powers in life or his relationships to other people in mathematical language, I was just like, oh, shove it. I hate you so much. (laughs) But uh, it should be noted that, like, Wallace was not – um, it, I would say what, you know, what is the word for it? an autodidact where he would sort of teach himself all the details of everything he needed while, for the piece that he was writing at that time? Does that make sense?
1: I feel like that is a running theme throughout all of his work.
0: Yeah. And but to excruciating detail.
1: Oh, absolutely. I, I finished my reading with Several of his nonfiction pieces, which I find fascinating because of how much detail they go into. It's like the footnote to Infinite Jest where there are single footnotes that last 20 pages.
0: Yeah. Okay, so... We're gonna get to this. So, um, I found two important pieces in the Los Angeles Review of Books about him, which I'll link to in a blog post on the website, fuckboysoflit.com. And the first essay is by a gentleman named Julius Toronto, T-A-R-A-N-T-O, from September 2018, which was probably the 10-year anniversary of the writer's death. And it's called On Outgrowing David Foster Wallace, which I think most of us do kind of do eventually. Like if we haven't built an altar to him, we read them for the first time probably in our freshman or sophomore lit classes, which is when I did. And and it's new. It's so unique the way that he speaks and the way that he writes that you feel like you're in some kind of secret club. And then after a little while, you're not reading things for scholarly purposes. So you kind of go to something maybe a little bit less heady. So this writer found his first Wallace when he was 17, when he was taking like an SAT course and found a copy of Infinite Jest and, and then plowed through it and then spent his next two years just obsessing over the writer to the point that he applied to and got into Pomona College, which is where Wallace was teaching at the time, and had been waiting, like, with anticipation to actually take this man's, uh, you know, freshman literature course. Um, But unfortunately, Wallace did die by suicide before this gentleman had a chance to actually take his class, which undid him. He didn't really know how to go on with his studies or even reading casually without the promise of Wallace in the future. One passage from the essay really kicked me in the gut, and it says, Wallace's wily mode of asserting superiority manifests in his insistent use of hyper-specialized vocabulary and maximalist levels of detail. This is also a power play. Wallace's master of esoteric detail and vocabulary produces a sense of exactly that. Mastery. And above that, I wrote in all caps, he's the patron saint of Gamergate and fanboyism. Have you ever been quizzed by someone who didn't want to let you in the club? You know what I mean?
1: I know exactly what you mean. Being a comics writer and seeing institutional sexism in the comics world. And the thing is, that has never happened to me because. I am a straight, nerdy, white guy in the club already. Right.
0: Thank you for never being that to me you know, the the, the gatekeeper. But it reminded me so much of someone, you know, you talk about Star Wars, and then someone asks you to name every single character that shows up in the cantina scene. And if you can't, you're you're a fake nerd girl. And that sort of level of detail, no matter who's including it, and for what purpose, it ends up being exclusionary which I think is something that a lot of people find in Wallace's work. I have a hard time reading a lot of his work because it is incredibly dense and it can be very off-putting and it can be a slog. And I'm someone who was a literature major. And even I find sometimes that I'm just banging my head against a wall. So if you are not into slogging through that much information, that's already one gatekeeping aspect of his work.
1: I feel like it also goes beyond gatekeeping. Some of the last pieces I read of his were his great nonfiction writings, getting away from already pretty much being away from it all, and a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. And what he's describing going to the Illinois State Fair and then going on a week-long cruise. Both of those are details piled up upon details, piled up upon more details— but my point is he uses all of this to finally express existential bewilderment on why anything is happening. And he writes as from the perspective of someone who almost feels lucky to have survived. And I feel like that's not just, it goes beyond geeky to the point where he's might make you feel that if you enjoy certain things or experiences comparable to what he's writing about, something's wrong with you.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I was going to bring up uh, Consider the Lobster, which I prior to doing this, I worked in the food and beverage uh, editorial industry. And um, so I'm very familiar with you know writing for for food magazines and this was an article uh, for Gourmet magazine I think in the late 90s or early 2000s where he was sent to the Maine Lobster Festival and I have a lot of issues with this piece and and relating two different ways is that again like he he mentioned in the supposedly fun thing I'll never do again he craps all over the Maine Lobster Festival, you know, and it's a huge draw for the state of Maine. And he just acts as though anybody who's there and enjoying themselves is trash. And there's no other way to feel about this. You know, he just says it's tacky and not fun, and it's dirty, and it's loud, and it's crowded. And it's, you know, it's a really mean way to treat the subject that you're writing about. You would never, most people cannot get away with that, let's just say, if you're writing sort of service editorial. And then the other thing, the other way that this relates to the sort of entree into the topic that I had discussed earlier, is that at one point in the essay, he goes into just Unbelievable taxonomic detail about what lobsters actually are. And if you really like them, I apologize to you. They are basically sea roaches. And you know, even in Maine and throughout New England, they're colloquially colloquially referred to as bugs because they're gross. They're they're little bottom feedery buggy things. And he goes into extreme detail about how they're related to what and other creepy crawlies and then just cavalierly throws in the phrase it's all in the encyclopedia and you're reading this and you think to yourself no asshole i don't sit down and read the encyclopedia and memorize details about sea bugs this is not like it's such a snide and condescending way to present people information. And I just thought it was so indicative of his writing that he overwhelms you with information and then acts as though if you didn't know that already, then you're just kind of like an idiot. Or maybe I'm particularly sensitive to being condescended to. I'm not sure if if that's the thing.
1: I think particularly with his nonfiction, which I'm kind of thankful I experienced it for the first time getting ready to do this podcast with you. Oh,
0: really? Yeah. Okay. Because I had only seldom read his fiction and mostly read his nonfiction. So that could be another reason why we don't relate the same to, to his work.
1: Possibly, I, I'm not willing to go that far yet because I feel like you and I are both driving towards a mutual conclusion. <laughs> Save back to the throwing climax of the podcast, but there is a sense in reading his nonfiction, and I didn't even get to read as much of it as I wanted to. But both his attitude and the way he describes things, there's almost times when he feel when he can make a reader feel like they shouldn't enjoy the things they enjoy, or that they're dealing with somebody who is, if not more intelligent than them, the way he can write about himself, even when he's writing about his own failures or at times he's wrong, he can present himself as a very romantic figure in a landscape. So you feel lesser. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Generally speaking, he did not come from a wealthy family or anything like that. There's no inherent sort of like when you're discussing British figures from the 1800s, you have to ask, oh, was he landed? You know, this is not, you know, he's a Gen Xer essentially. So there's no just inherent I'm better than you sort of social aspect to his life.
1: No, is not. But one time... I was thinking of Derivative Sport in Tornado Alley, just the first nonfiction piece I've read, where he talks about his fall from being a nationally ranked young tennis player to leaving tennis. And in that essay, he makes everything feel so dramatic and gigantic on a scale that we ordinary humans, we would never appreciate things the way he appreciates them and think the final image of him losing his drive to play tennis after going through a quasi-tornado is just so much larger in life. He's romanticizing his own failure and almost saying, if you fail like I did, that's okay. I think like that's one of the lessons the fanboys you described at the beginning might take from him. Like, all what we're talking about feels like an attitude— You could adapt if you love Wallace this much.
0: Right. And what I find very interesting is that, you know, you're talking about how romantically he treats his own passions. And towards the end of Consider the Lobster, he is uh, discussing essentially the morality of – cooking lobster, you know, where you have to basically throw a live animal into a pot of boiling water. And uh, full disclosure, I'm a vegetarian. So I probably won't discuss this with the kindness of terms. But he then goes on for the last few paragraphs of the piece. Again, this is for Gourmet Magazine in print in the early 2000s. So he was probably paid a healthy amount of money to, to write this. He goes on and says gourmets as in like people who appreciate fine food gourmets simply do this for they don't understand the um the morality of cooking animals and they do it for their own gustatory pleasure and their own sort of hedonistic pleasure of the of the taste of an animal and you know you're writing this for a magazine called gourmet and there was so much derision about how he was clearly superior because he was considering the morality of killing lobsters whereas the people who read gourmet magazine and even the editors that hired him probably had never considered the morality of boiling live lobsters before and i just thought to myself wow the balls on this guy to to submit this to the leading food magazine in the united states that takes that takes some guts to really openly call people out like that, but also to treat yourself as, who's, he's not a food writer in any way, as some, so like inherently superior to the people who are food writers and are the staff of Gourmet Magazine or the readers of Gourmet Magazine. I just thought to myself, that is, that is ballsy. Another aspect that we're going to have to touch upon um that I'm going to segue into because of the same sort of on outgrowing David Foster Wallace essay from the LA Review of Books is that the writer starts off the essay by referencing Wallace's shameful treatment of women. And this is going to get really dark. Just as a warning, there's going to be talk of domestic violence and abuse. Um, Wallace was incredibly abusive of at least one of his previous girlfriends. Um, she speaks about it pretty openly, but again, I'm not going to name her because she's a writer and a brilliant writer in her own right. And I don't want to only have, you know, about her in the, in the context of abuse. Um, he stalked her. He tried to shove her out of a moving car. He threatened to buy a gun to shoot her husband. He stalked her child who was five years old at the time, and he would attempt to break into her home and he also admitted to a friend at a certain point that he committed statutory rape against a young girl while on book tour and the fact that writers refer to this as shameful treatment of women i, I was floored i was absolutely floored have you ever noticed his sort of uh you know double treatment. In addition to, you know, the depressed person, which you referenced before, um, he has a sort of double treatment of women. Did you, I am not sure if there were a lot of female characters in Infinite Jest, were there? Did he treat them differently from his male protagonists?
1: So one, it's funny, I was thinking about this. One thing I love to do when I'm reading a book that is completely captivating me is mentally fan casting a film version of the book.
0: Oh, definitely. You and I have discussions about this all the time.
1: Yes. Now, for Infinite Gist, I mentioned it as a giant HBO miniseries directed by Wes Anderson.
0: <laughs> Wes Anderson? Okay.
1: In this 1,400-page book, I can only think of three actresses who could be in the entire story. And one of them would have been playing a man who's disguised as a woman. Yeah, the only two female characters in Infinite Jest are a mysterious woman who always wears a veil because she is terribly scarred and is this sort of inscrutable, mysterious figure many male characters get drawn to, and the woman who runs the aforementioned tennis academy who is sleeping with one of her students.
0: Is he of age?
1: No, no, no. These are teenagers. Great. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I want to shy away from Infinite Jazz, again, we, pro- we probably have very different opinions. We probably have very different perspectives on that since I have read it and you have not. With
0: Yeah, with reason that I haven't picked it up.
1: <laughs> One thing I mentioned to you in our early text in this episode is I got very angry. Full disclosure, I am a past Jeopardy! champion. Dave Foster Wallace wrote a wonderful short story about Jeopardy! called... Little expressionless animals, which I want to bring up really quick in its treatment of women versus men, because it goes back to the same, the depressed person, good old neon dichotomy. It's a story where almost all the major characters are women. And the only men who show up are Alex Trebek and Merv Griffin and other game show hosts. But the female characters are depicted as well, they're incredibly interesting, but they're also full of sadness and depression and neuroses and huge flaws. And it ends with a woman who's been winning Jeopardy nonstop for three years, finally losing because they put her up against her autistic brother who knows about animals. And she can't either, she can't both can't think about animals. Or truly face her brother. And in this story, are all really fun, philosophizing, freewheeling guys who drink beer and watch sports. And even when they touch into their neuroses, are depicted as, boy, this is crazy, but crazy in a fun and interesting and I can relate with way. Yeah.
0: Swinging and interesting. And look at all well, yes. my quirks. Aren't I appealing kind of way? Woohoo. Yeah. I haven't read that piece. Um, I I will as soon as we finish. Can you repeat the name of it again?
1: Little Expressionless Animals.
0: I'm gonna ask the standard like freshman English 101. What does the title refer
1: to? The Jeopardy champion, who is also having an affair with the show's head researcher. They're both they're both women. Her and her autistic brother were abandoned by her adulterous mother on Messiah Road next to a farm. And that day, she realized animals like cows look at you with no expression. And now she cannot bear to think of any animals, period.
0: Interesting. Um, I found an interview with him from the early 2000s, and a Spanish writer named Eduardo Lago on a website called Electric Lit, and uh, i'll link to it again on the fuck boys of Lit website
1: i read this i'm so curious to hear you talk about super curious
0: okay so wallace was like a many many more artistic writers um he was also a, li- a literature and writing professor um and he likes to take moments to um We'll politely say shit on mainstream writers. And um, he's asked about what he teaches in his college literature courses. And this made me so angry when I called my mother this morning to talk about recording this podcast. I ranted about it for a solid 20 minutes. And uh, he said that he was asked how he assigns books or pieces for his literature courses. And he said, and this is a generalized quote, but his words, Freshman literature where the department will buy an anthology and I will teach them John Updike, John Cheever, Ursula Le Guin, and Shirley Jackson, a lot of what I consider to be standard stories. I've tried teaching more ambitious fiction and it doesn't work well. Andrew, could you imagine telling people that Shirley Jackson and Ursula Le Guin, and John Cheever for that matter, are unambitious fiction? I've never been so angry in my life at something so inconsequential, and Andrew knows me really well, so he knows that I get angry at inconsequential things all the time.
1: That is quite possibly one of the most ignorant things I have ever heard someone I consider a really terrific writer say about Writing and literature and existence in general.
0: When The Haunting of Hill House came out on on Netflix, and a lot of people had never heard of the source text before, and I said, Oh, it's by Shirley Jackson. And they looked at me with, you know, big cow eyes, and they had no idea what expressive cow eyes, we'll say, and they didn't know who I was talking about. And I said, You remember the lottery? And then I explained the story to them and they were like, yeah, oh, I remember that. And every single person, the first time you read it, you got chills down your spine and it's a brilliant piece of short fiction. And I I won't say that it's inaccessible, but it is still brilliant. It's accessible, but it's still brilliant to sneer at that story is just-
1: I am not an expert on Shirley Jackson or Ursula K. Le Guin, but I've read enough of their work to know But it is both accessible and utterly brilliant in ways, as I said about Lost at the start of this episode, few other writers could ever hope to match.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. They, they hit this pinnacle of writing that, again, Andrew and I are both writers, that you hope that something as simple Uh, Maybe not, you know, not simple, but like seemingly simple as these stories will be read. It's just, it's, complication doesn't make literature good. Density doesn't make literature good. It just keeps people from reading it.
1: There's a reason I've never bothered to read, say, Finnegan's Wake or Gravity's Rainbow. I don't need to put myself At least I don't feel the need to put myself in that experience. At least not right now. Maybe one day. But there's so many other things to read out there that are much clearer and which I know from the the books I've I've loved in the past and put my life around will give me extraordinary meaning without having to send me to a thesaurus or some just
0: give you a headache while you're trying to plow through five hundred pages of text.
1: Exactly. (laughs)
0: And, you know, you'll notice a pattern in those, you know, authors that he sneered at and that two of them were the most, two of the most well-known female writers in America and of their genres, Ursula Le Guin in science fiction and Shirley Jackson in horror. And also John Cheever, who was difficult to describe, His sexuality, but decidedly not straight.
1: Indeed, no.
0: So, I mean, I won't go for John Updike, like, in any way. I don't like him. I I have a funny personal story about him that one day he, I lived in suburban Massachusetts for a brief time as a child, and one day he knocked my mother over in a library, and she picked me up from school going, John, uh, I'm sorry, John Updike knocked me over in a library today. Fucking John Updike. (laughs) <laughs> you know, so that I'm ten and I have no idea who John Updike is. So ever since then, screw you, John Updike. You know, you knocked my mom over in a library. So I probably won't ever go to bat for him at any time. But John Cheever, Ursula Le Guin, and Shirley Jackson—you do not get to go after and not raise my hackles because, man, that's some pretentious bullshit.
1: So on a note, can I see something about Updike though? Absolutely. Eyes like into David Foster Wallace and his fan, and the fan culture surrounding him and may lead to what we've been driving at a little bit. So one of Wallace's many non-fiction pieces that he collected himself was he wrote it, what ended up becoming a pretty famous review of one of Updike's last novels toward the end of time. And Wallace hated the book and used it to slam Updike. For ten straight pages.
0: Do you know what publication this was for? I'm just asking.
1: I forget off the top of my head. It's referenced in one of the articles you sent me, because he he mostly he's, he's criticizing Updike for the way Updike talks about and treats his female characters in what's called a sort sounds a sort of performative feminism, but. Wallace is fascinated by how Updike is not aware his heroes are repellent people. And the final sentence of the essay is, Wallace is talking about how the protagonist of Toward the End of Time is so aware he is unhappy. And Wallace says, It never once occurs to him, though, but the reason he's so unhappy is that he's an asshole. And Wallace about how all of Updike's protagonists are basically the same person, and the protagonists of Infinite Jest and Wallace's first-person narrative short stories, they're all versions of David Foster Wallace. They're all romantic thinkers who pile up one idea after another, and even when they lose, there's still something romantic about them. Or they end up having a final um, mind-shattering plot twist breakthrough at the end, as happens in Good Old Neon, and happens in, in Infinite Chest. And these people, and all these male protagonists who he really identifies with, I feel like in one degree or another, they're people I would never want to meet in real life. And they're all, and you put those fictions side by side with his essays.
0: And I would never want to meet essayist David Foster Wallace. He sounds like a prick.
1: If I, ever, if I had ever gone to meet David Foster Wallace, I seriously wonder what my impression of him would have been. But I've known enough self-important people to suspect I probably wouldn't like him. But he still creates this sense of, oh, I am depressed and complicated and flawed, but that makes me special. And I feel like that is what so many of the David Foster Wallace fans latch onto. But they see themselves as, I'm depressed, and I'm flawed, and I have all these problems. But maybe that's what makes me super special and interesting in the end. And I realize that's a reductive thing to say, but I also think there's kind of a bit of truth in that.
0: Do you think that Wallace didn't have perhaps respect for women who were going through depression as well? I mean, just case in point, the dichotomy of the depressed person versus good old Neon, just sort of there's something heroic in men dealing with depression and something sniveling about women going through the same thing?
1: From the way he writes about women in his fiction. I feel like he is much more fascinated by their problems and how they try to solve them than he is. I think he's an empathetic person, but I do not think his empathy matches his fascination and the idea that he's seizing this chance to almost clinically observe what's happening.
0: I have some difficulty with ever seeing someone who was consistently abusive as empathetic. Does that make sense? I, I think that
1: makes a lot of sense.
0: I think that if you are someone who is consistently abusive and I and I will say that or a habitual abuser of partners or of people. I'm going to play armchair armchair psychologist, but I think a lot of that stems from having no empathy or drawing concrete lines on who you can empathize with.
1: No, I would definitely agree with that. I feel like in some cases, Wallace's empathy is not, it's a self-centered empathy. It's not so much with, your problems. It's that, oh, I am messed up. You're messed up. I can relate.
0: But in the end, I think he would probably always say that his own problems were more interesting or pressing than whoever he's trying to empathize with.
1: I would not disagree with that statement one bit. I think the end of good old Neon, when he talks about how oh, I am super cool and I'm wondering why this person did what they did to themselves is proof positive of that.
0: Right. You don't take a 41-page rumination over a former acquaintance's suicide and then make yourself the subject of the piece for the last you know, page and a half of it. Or at least that's an interesting exercise.
1: <laughs> I think the only people... Wallace would ever fully embrace are people he sees as superior to him, which as comes up in both his fiction and nonfiction on scanned occasions. But everybody else is, oh, we're all messed up. But because I have the sense to write about it, I think I'm a rung up on you.
0: I, I think that is a perfect way to describe it.
1: And that's an attitude his fans, I think, can relate to, that we understand things the way this person understands things because we've gotten through his writing. We understand the way his mind works. So now we have this way of seeing the world that you might not have if you haven't read David Foster Wallace. So like him, we've got one up on you, even if we recognize your pain at the same time as our pain.
0: Oh, oh <laughs> It's so much, Andrew. It's so much. Every single time I have been mansplained about David Foster Wallace, it's suffocating. (laughs) (laughs) Like I didn't also study literature in college. You know what I mean?
1: Have men mansplained Foster Wallace to you? Because I don't – again, that's not an experience that ever happened to me.
0: I think – I uh, you know it hasn't happened in a while it hasn't happened since probably graduating college so I'm sure some of that was um to put put it completely impolitely it was just dick swinging you know what I mean of just sort of like I've read Infinite Jest no you saw it on a shelf you douche like <laughs> you didn't read it um, I'm sure a lot of that has been coded shorthand for i can name drop i can drop this piece of information um and and seem superior to you and if you your eyebrows perk up at the mention of david foster wallace then i know that you can speak the same shorthand as me does that make sense
1: that makes a lot of sense
0: so i think he has become something that he utilized quite a bit in his text of dropping hints of information in order to find out who is worthy.
1: I would definitely agree with that.
0: There's... Again, in September 2018, there was an interview in, again, in the L.A. Review of Books with a woman named Clara Hayes Brady, who's a professor in Dublin. And she teaches David Foster Wallace's work in many of her classes, but she doesn't teach, you know, a, a, a class solely about his work. Um, and she was asked, is just point blank, Is David Foster Wallace a misogynist? And the first word out of her mouth is yes. No qualifications, nothing. You know, she goes on to explain, of course, you know, his history of abuse against women, even his treatment of female writers and female characters. He just is. I don't think that you can equivocate or try to qualify the fact that he just did not value women as much as he valued men.
1: That is 1,000% true.
0: You can't imagine why, like, women wouldn't want to spend the time to devour these novels or these books or these pieces when you are conscious that the person writing them doesn't value you as a person or you're worth 77 cents to, you know, 100% you know, of the of the male readers. And uh, she was also asked in the same interview, if we should stop reading him. And I thought she had a really good answer. And she said, I would draw a distinction between choosing a reader, choosing as a reader and choosing as a critic. And I think that's a really important distinction, as we do start to take the personal values of writers more and more into consideration when we read them. Do you think that's fair to say?
1: I think that's very fair to say because I also read this interview after you, I'm very thankful for it, you pointed out. And in when she's answering the question between what you do as a reader, what you do as a critic, uh, one of the specific examples she makes is Woody Allen. And you and I have talked about this quite a bit.
0: I'm a hard no on Woody
1: Allen. I think that comes as no surprise. You are, I know you are a very hard no on Woody Allen, I am a very hard-known Woody Allen now. I also will perpetually own up to that Annie Hall made me want to be a writer. But it showed me this is what your writing could do if you work at it.
0: Oh, absolutely. Because one of the things that you notice about people like Woody Allen or David Foster Wallace or John Updike or, or anything like that or, you know... That kind, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, is um there's a certain amount of charm and a certain amount of gravitas and a certain amount of interest that they manage to exude. And I haven't watched, you know, that documentary I think on Netflix about the serial killer which one was it, Ted Bundy or something like that, and how they managed to charm you. And you have these toxic, toxic people that somehow they're magnetic. And I don't want to put maybe Wallace, who was an abusive person, partner in the same sort of basket as a serial killer, obviously. But, um, you know, there is just sort of that certain personality where you are attracted to this person who is has, might be a little bit dangerous. And it's actually something that I've been talking about a lot with m- on multiple of these podcasts, is that the Byronic romantic hero of Mad, Bad, and Dangerous to Know is like baseline fuckboy. Like how he has this, and you you kept calling him, you know, his perspective of his own failures or his own life, incredibly romantic. And that just really kind of stuck with me is that there is some, there is a common thread here. There absolutely is.
1: I can definitely see a the comparison there. Because when I use the word romantic to describe Foster Wallace, it's in the sense of, people he's luxuriating in his own flaws and his own pain and certainly i think byron celebrated as much as he did the positive aspects of his character the negative aspects as well in a sense of oh if i didn't have this i wouldn't be me and look at me
0: absolutely absolutely this is so interesting I, I wasn't expecting to come around to this kind of circle, but now it's feeling pretty good, not going to lie. One last thing that I wanted to bring up was probably from this same interview with uh, Eduardo Lago. And uh, it, it it's going to be about uh, devices and the actual act of writing. And Lago asks Wallace, you know, what's with the footnotes, basically? Because if you've ever read David Foster Wallace, you will know that he egregiously uses footnotes. We discussed this earlier with Infinite Jest. And Consider the Lobster has footnotes, even though it's in a print magazine. Pretty much everything he writes uses footnotes.
1: and Literally, the last thing I read before we did this, and it's the last essay in the David Foster Wallace Reader, is his absolutely beautiful essay both flesh and not. And he puts the grand conclusion, not in the body of the text, but in a footnote, two paragraphs from the end of a text. <laughs> and in, in the Dave Foster Wallace reader, Sven Burkert, who was quoted all around Emerson while we were studying there, considers that the most brilliant thing a writer could do Maybe all, maybe the male literary critics, the male writers are all in this together.
0: I'm starting to wonder if there was some kind of grand conspiracy. Because, you know, I guess as someone who I've always uh, made my, my bread and kept the lights on by being an editorial writer, and you can't bullshit like that when you're an editorial writer. It, you just can't do it. And I could never imagine being allowed to get away with that crap.
1: Absolutely,
0: not. Andrew, the stunned look on my face, because I I missed this essay, but the, the fact that you would put the, the absolute climax of your emotional piece in a footnote and then be heralded for it, I... That's some bullshit. That's absolute bullshit.
1: And also, and also, I think you'd like this. The grand conclusion is that if you believe in God, it's so wondrous that the same God who could give a two and a half year old cancer also gave us Roger Federer.
0: Screw that. Okay. So a little bit in between uh, Andrew and myself is that we've been friends for a very, very long time. And I am an atheist and Andrew is not. We have discussions about, uh, you know, spirituality pretty constantly. And, uh, and I think, I hope I haven't been an asshole to you when discussing spirituality, um, which I know I have, probably have a tendency to do.
1: I've known you since 2003 and you have never been an asshole to me once in all that time.
0: Andrew wants back on the podcast. I think that's what that was. <laughs>
1: and, uh, I'm laughing so hard I'm going to blow out the microphones.
0: <laughs> My work here is done, everybody. Um, but to, if you believe in God, you should be in awe of the fact that a God that who can kill a two-year-old also made Roger Federer. I think Roger Federer would be insulted by that.
1: Yeah, the exact line is the truth is whatever deity, entity, energy, or random genetic flux produces sick children also produced Roger Federer. And just look at him down there.
0: Uh Andrew, I, I the 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 roiling hate in my body right now. <laughs> And this wasn't even the discussion I wanted to have about footnotes.
1: Oh, no. I'm sorry.
0: No, I find it so funny. But uh, you know what? This will be a nice little cherry on top when we discuss this. So there's a quote. Eduardo Lago asks... Uh, Wallace about his reliance on footnotes and Wallace says, I lean on footnotes in infinite jest. And I think I got in sort of a habit of thinking and writing in them. The last couple of things I've done don't have any footnotes in them. They're not, they're certainly not a trademark.
1: What? Thank you. (sighs) Okay. Because the essay I just quoted came out 10 years after Infinite Jest. And it is full of footnotes.
0: But, Andrew, there's certainly not a trademark. Now, there's a term that's been going around uh, as people have gotten more adept at discussing emotional and psychological manipulation. And there's a term called gaslighting. Yes. Where some it comes from a movie I, I've forgot who directed it. Um, but you know, it, it, it I'm sorry. George. It was Cukor?
1: George. Yes. It was Kukor. Okay. Thank you. I'm, I'm almost, I'm almost positive. Almost positive. Um,
0: if anybody would know off the top of their head, it's Andrew. So I'm going to trust him on this one. Um, so uh, basically it's a term for someone telling you that what you see with your own eyes is, isn't real. And it's a psychological manipulation. So I'm currently sitting in my bedroom, which has white walls. And if I said to Andrew, the walls are white, and he said, no, they're blue. And I'd go, what the hell are you talking about? My walls are white. They're white. I'm looking at them right now. And you'd continue saying, no, what you're seeing is not real. Eventually, you begin to doubt reality, your own perception and your own existence, sort of. And so for someone like a known abuser, David Foster Wallace, telling you that his use of his trademark is not a trademark, just was the cherry on top of me going, fuck this guy.
1: Yeah, he was. That is definitely talking out your own ass. (laughs) (laughs) So
0: on that note. I think it's time to wrap up. Andrew, will you tell our listeners uh, how they can keep in touch with you, perhaps your Twitter handle or your website and how they can keep in touch?
1: Absolutely. So I am simply Andrew Rostin on Twitter, all one word. Rosten.
0: R-O-S-T-A-N.
1: Yep. That's my last name. I am a writer who has published two books. They are both on available on Amazon.com. And LG for Amelia Johnson and form of a question. Form of a question came out a couple months ago. I will be promoting it at comic cons across the country this year.
0: Well, thank you so much for for letting everybody know. And uh, if you follow both of us, myself at Ms. Emily Edwards and Andrew Roston on Twitter, you'll be privy to some interesting conversations. I can imagine. And as always, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at Fuckboysoflit, that's B O I S, or at fuckboysoflit.com, where I'll post links to the articles and pieces we've read for this episode. Or you can follow me personally again at Ms. Emily Edwards, that's M S -S 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 Emily Edwards. Thank you again for listening, and until next time. It's so much, Andrew. It's so much.